We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and faced heartaches and triumphs and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Vantes. I'm a writer, comedian, and filmmaker. And before we dive into this week's episode on Mary Tyler Moore, I want to take a moment to tell you guys that this podcast officially aired in October last year. Uh, It was announced in July, and I came up with it many, many, many months before then, but in October is when we began airing, so it's, it's our birthday. And so in celebration of that, I want to ask you guys to leave us a nice review so that our podcast network will keep this podcast going. Reviews tell them that people are listening, they're downloading, they want to hear this podcast. If you cannot leave a review for whatever reason, um, your fingers are shy or you're listening on an app that doesn't allow reviews, tell a friend about this podcast, post about it online, anything to let the network know that we should keep this podcast going. And to celebrate our journey on this podcast, I'm going to shout out a few of our recent reviews. Um, This was inspired by Bill L., who left a review saying, I'm not on social media, but you said you read every review, and I want to give you a huge thank you. And he said so many nice things. Bill, thank you so much for writing me this, and you're right, (laughs) for better or for worse. I do read every review, and there are so many incredible, thoughtful, insightful reviews, and they have really warmed my heart. Then there's someone who binged all of them, um, someone who doesn't listen to podcasts except for this one. Another person talked about how 
uh, incredible it was to hear someone else talk about being disconnected from a biological parent at birth and dealing with that trauma. And me reading this makes me feel less alone and 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 it makes me feel weepy to read stuff like that. So I loved, I love all these reviews and I do read them and I will continue to read them until, I don't know, my mental health collapses. So <laughs> thank you so much for writing them. And let's dive in to this episode. This week, we are book clubbing Mary Tyler Moore's memoir titled After All, published in 1995. This book uh, is not what I was expecting. I would overall call it chilling. Um, It has depth, it has humor, and it was written without a ghostwriter. And it has five of the strangest anecdotes I have ever read in a memoir. How old are you? 30. No hedging. No, how old do I look? (laughs) Why hedge? (laughs) How old do I look? (laughs) 30. What religion are you? Uh, Mr. Grant, I don't quite know how to say this, but uh, you're not allowed to ask that when someone's applying for a job. It's, it's against the law. Want to call a cop? <laughs> Good. Would you think I was violating your civil rights if I asked if you're married? Presbyterian. <laughs> That was an iconic Mary Tyler Moore clip, and we are diving into everything MTM, Mary Tyler Moore, today with our amazing and incredible guest, Melissa Fumero. Hi, Melissa. Hey, girl. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I'm so stoked for this one. Melissa is an actor and director. You know her from all over TV in so many roles, but playing Amy Santiago on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for eight seasons. That was a number, like, uh, that was a number tongue tongue twister. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, eight seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And you guys just had your big finale show, so it's very much on my mind. Well, thanks. I know, I know. Um, So, Melissa, before we get into the book, I introduced my guests with a story of how we first met. Do you remember how we first met? At Bridget's reading, Right? Yeah. 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 It's yeah. not a quiz, not a test. Um, <laughs> I was like, was there a time before that that I'm forgetting? <laughs> like, we went to school together. No, um, yeah, we we were in our good friend Bridget's very funny reading of her pilot, which is on another podcast called uh, Dead Pilot Society. Mm-hmm. And we were in like a staged reading. I still have a picture of you and Bridget. I'll, yeah. I'll and I was very phone. pregnant. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't even think. I'm trying to remember if I realized you were pregnant. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. But I was, it was like December and he was born in February. Like I okay, yes, waddled yeah. into that reading. And I remember saying <laughs> yes and then getting there and going, are people just going to be staring at my huge stomach and not like, was this a bad idea? Am I going to derail the whole thing? Because I'm so fucking pregnant. Like, what was Um, I thinking? And the character is not pregnant. Oh, (laughs) no, but it it was incredible. And clearly didn't, I mean, I barely, I was like, were you pregnant then? (laughs) I I did a different equivalent of that, which is like, I was like, oh, I want to dress like my character. Why? It's a podcast show. You know what I mean? And I wore this like a, bright pink, very low-cut velvet dress in a—no one else did that. And so then I was, like, on stage in a very, like—in the worst choice I could have made. That is so funny. (laughs) I see—my memory is just that you looked really fucking hot. And I was like, who is this? And then I'm all pregnant. I was like, who is this gorgeous, crazy, sexy woman? God damn it. I will look like that again. Uh, And and, And she's funny? (laughs) 
<laughs> I did fall in love with you that day and made it known. I was like, I'm did in love it. with you. Um, yeah, I think. Okay, look, it'll be a love fest, but first right. we're going to dive in to this book. So yes. tell me what made you choose Mary Tyler Moore of all the memoirs. Uh, I picked her because I was about to go into shooting the last season of Brooklyn. And there have been times where Andre Brower has told me that I remind him of Mary Tyler Moore. He'll be like, you're like a Latina Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and and by the way, like, I loved that compliment. The first time he said it to me, I got all weepy. By the way, I agree. I agree. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so I think I picked her because I was feeling like super emo about going into last season and not knowing that much about her. And, you know, I remember watching some episodes of Mary Tyler Moore, like when I was a kid, when they'd be on like yeah. Nick at Night or something. Like, um, so yeah, there was something, you know, I was feeling like all emo and nostalgic. And I was like, let me read about this woman. <laughs> I was going to ask you because when you, I mean, one of the first pages, she's like, this is what it was like to leave the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I'm in this intense grieving process. And I was like, oh my God, Melissa is ending Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That one was seven seasons. Yours was eight. Like you both play, I'm not going to say similar characters, but like their characteristics that are like somewhat similar. Yeah, the like high energy type A, like, yeah, woman trying to have it all. Yeah, gets things done, done, highly comedic. Yeah, I know. I had the same feeling when I started the book. I, and, you know, we just had the the finale aired last week. And I started this on my flight back from New York from doing the oh, whole finale what? thing. Oh, my God. So I was on the plane just like, wow, I can't believe I picked this book. And when she talks about getting on the Dick Van Dyke show and what an amazing cast it was and how comedy-wise it was so stacked up and she felt like a little out of her depth and like she was working with masters. I was like, I feel like I'm I'm reading like what it was like for me when I started Brooklyn. Like that's how I felt. And I was like yeah. the dramatic actor and just trying to like bring that, but like just being like, I don't know. Um, yeah. That so. is so, well, okay, two things. I was thinking about you constantly. I was like, I can't believe this is the guest <laughs> for this book. This is crazy. Um, and then also, I did not realize you consider yourself a dramatic actor. You're so, um, they don't write, I'm going to say something weird, which is like <laughs> a lot of like, you know, you play like the love interest and like they won't write those roles funny. And then when they do, sometimes they don't cast them funny. And like, you've always just been like so funny, uh. but also like you could carry like a love story at the same time, which I think is just super special. And also your show, like when's the last sitcom that ran for eight seasons the way your guys did. No, I, it still blows our minds. And and yeah. we've been like, you know, especially with how much TV is changing. And I, I feel like the, the length of shows, you know, people are sort of going like, yeah, four seasons feels right for like telling a yeah. story, you know? Like it feels like yeah. a lot of people are doing that. And we're like, oh, there might not be that many other shows after us that make it to eight. Like it's weird. Like we're kind of yeah. the end, we're like towards the end of something, it feels like. You might be the end of an era. Like it might. It's, like it's very yeah. possible because it feels wow. like people are moving away from that. Okay. So when you were reading about her leaving the show and what it was like, like, did any parts of it make you feel better, make you feel worse? Was there something where you're like, this is exactly what it's like? Yeah, I think I definitely related a lot to it. Um, you know, obviously, it like, for her, it was the the people, you know? And, like, and, and that sort of 
duality of like, oh, this it this feels like the right time to end this thing. Although she, I think, didn't want to end it. She wanted like to keep going, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like she faked everyone was said that they should end it. And she was like, Yeah, cool, me too. Yeah. But yeah. Didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't feel like I've on Brooklyn, I I don't think there was any of us that were like, let's keep going, like nine more years. Like every Well, also it was last season was in a pandemic, right? Right. Yes. So I imagine that kind of you're like, okay. Also, new challenges with making a, a cop comedy in the year 2021 that, yep. yeah, we're like, <laughs> it feels like the right time to end this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so funny. I Well, also one thing that really struck me reading this is that Mary Tyler Moore, her character is named Mary. She's Mary. And so she starts the book with like uh, a scene between her and her character and how she's afraid about how everyone's going to find out that she's nothing like the Mary Tyler Moore we know, and then they'll be disappointed. And it reminds me of something I heard Issa Rae say, which is that she always um, uh, regretted naming her character Issa because there's like Mm. no differentiation between the two. And it was odd to get to know and I felt bad feeling this. I was like, it was a little odd to get to know her and realize, like, yeah, she is so different from right. yeah. the sitcom character we yeah. knew. And I, so we were both talking about how this book was very unexpected. Um, would you, okay, would you consider the book to have like an intense effect to it? Like, a, like I kept, I could just keep thinking of the word like chilling, but maybe that's just how it's hitting me. Yeah, well, okay. I ha- I felt like I had a weird journey with this book because obviously it yeah. started and, I, you know, a lot of things to relate to. But then like the first half of the book, I was kind of like, is she a good person? Do yeah, I yeah, like yeah. her? <laughs> <laughs> she yes. says these, but then she like, she kept surprising me because she'd say some shit that was super privileged and really out of touch sometimes. And then yep. she would like, in the next paragraph, make fun of herself. Like that whole part when she's talking about that fancy car she had. And like yes. the way it starts out, you're just like, oh my God, are we really hearing the story? But then she like calls it her ego extender. And I'm yeah. just like, oh, she's aware. Like she's in on the joke. Like, and I felt like that kept happening. But I, in the first half of the book, I was like, I don't know if she's like a kind person. <laughs> like I was really, yeah. but then the last half of the book gets really intimate and more intense. Yes. You kind of almost wish the whole book was like that. And, and then, yeah, I'm the end of the book, like, I was sobbing. I was sobbing too. Sobbing. I I will say I came away from this book being very glad I read it and also thought to myself, I would never like her. (laughs) I I don't think I could like hang out because I also got this, like, I think you might be, she talks about how people described her as an ice princess and she thought that was unfair and incorrect. But as I was reading, I was like, you definitely read like an ice princess like in writing you're an yes. ice princess and like the her second are husband that she was with the yes. longest is like like oh. I literally had to go back and I was like wait did I miss when they fell in love like what is yeah. this relationship it's just like not in there and I mean we'll get into it but yes. huge things in the book have like a half a page on them yes and then she's done she's done and she ends it and you're like oh, oh my god <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> I had whiplash too. So it starts in her childhood. There's a lot of childhood description, not typically my favorite. So I'm just going to hit some highlights. Mm -hmm. Um, Grew up very Catholic, pretty poor. She had an alcoholic mother and a father who wouldn't love her and give her attention. She goes to live with an aunt when she's younger. Her little brother is punished and like sent away. I know. Um, Oh, and he suffers so much. And then 18 years later, 
She gets a younger sister a month before she is giving birth to her first son at 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And then a really intense highlight we have to get into very quick trigger warning is she's molested by a family friend when she's a young child. And when she tells her mom, her mom tells her she's a liar. And then she writes that hurt more than what happened. And, but, but again, like three but sentences and she moves on. It's the shortest paragraph. It's cr- the shortest it's, paragraph. It's insane. And it just kind of like never you. And never comes up again. Never comes up again. <laughs> but you, when you're reading it and you're like, oh, she's really like constricted. You're sort of like thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, I kind of, was there anything from childhood that hit you? Cause it was kind of a part was a blur to me. I was like, yeah. It was, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. It was a lot of description. But she's never like, I wanted to be an actor. I had the, she just, all of a sudden, the book really starts, she's 18. She gets married. She has her son, Richie. Mm-hmm. Um, her husband, her first husband, uh, uh, barely, I mean, two paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> he was older. I remember that. He was like, yes. I think he was he like, like 27. 27. Yes. Yes. Um. And it, I, I do remember one descriptive of like, oh, this this feels a little bit like a sweet first love kind of situation. But, oh, okay, they're getting married and they're having a baby. And she isn't yes, even yes. on a show yet. And I'm like, and then I kind of got intrigued because I was like, wait, she got her first break already married with a child? Like, Yes. <laughs> and, I mean, that is so wild. And um, she, like, says she outgrows him. Obviously, she marries him when she was 18. And yeah. the one fact I remember about him is that she said— he was a salesman for a food company, but he would tell people he was a food broker. Oh, yeah, that's right. And she would be like, you're a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he's gone. And then she's like, I want a divorce. And he's, and it's, and he's gone. And, and he's very like, okay, yeah, I want to live in the country. And they're like, okay. Like, <laughs> that's kind of, yeah. And that's it. That's the end. That's the end of him. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to talk now about her son, Richie. I'm going to give a warning to people. This is going to get sad, but he's in a few different places throughout the book. So I thought maybe we could just talk about him now. Yeah. Okay. So there's two very chilling things up top. There's a photo of her and on one side of her is her actual son, Richie. And on the other side of her is the actor who played her son, Richie, on the Dick Van Dyke show. That was painful. I was like, I just kept thinking like if I was her son, like it's literally like a thinner, shinier, cuter kid version of you with your name playing your mom's son on television. It also, I never knew that the character had the same name as her son. I'm like, who thought that was a good decision? Like, truly. I I, I mean, and she, that's not talked about. It's not like, oh, I imagine he had like a pretty intense psychosis. You just sort of, it's one photo. And I was like, oh my God. And then she describes later when she finds out she has diabetes, which is a big part of the book of trying to lose weight. And she goes on a joint diet with Richie when he is 12 years old because she very factually describes him as chubby. <laughs> yeah. She's like, he was chubby. So it was good for both of us. And I was like, oh, oh no. And she, yeah. And she's like, it was a bonding experience. And I was like, are you sure? And I'm just like, and oh, meanwhile, before <laughs> this, she talks all that, like, she says many times where she says she wasn't there enough. She worked too much. She wasn't a very present mother. She always had guilt about that. And then she's like, we went on a diet together and it was very bonding. And it's like, oh, 
Are you sure? I was like, oh, no. Yeah, like your son who never saw you, who you called chubby, went on a diet with you when he was 12 years old to bond with you. Like, poor fucking Richie, and it's going to get worse. So, okay, so this set the table for a horrifying quote. I think you know what I'm about to read. She says, in those days, like most working mothers, eager to join the movement and proclaim our right and need to express ourselves, to be fulfilled and happy, knowing that every ounce of our creativity was being used, and that it was possible to also raise children at the same time. I no longer believe that. I think there is something in nature that says women should work if they can, but once they commit to bringing life into the world, that should be the first priority. When a child is raised in a daycare center, it's not the same thing. Many mothers have to work and there is no choice, but it's not the best beginning for children. I am surprised to find myself writing this. In my own case, it wasn't just a matter of not enough hours in the day to work and also be with my child. It was complicated by an inability to enjoy my child, to understand what a child wants and needs. I may or may not have thrown the book across the room after I read yeah. that. Because <laughs> you literally are a working, mo- a working mother. And I was like, and I mean, I, I'm not a mother and I was intensely offended. I, I was like, whoa, you like put this on everyone else. Like whatever you're feeling about yourself and what happened, you then said women biologically should not have a job. It's almost like, oh, it wasn't my fault that I was a bad mom. I did the thing that goes against nature. Nature. And that's why I just couldn't enjoy motherhood and couldn't fully be there for my kid because I did what I'm actually not supposed to do. Yeah, went against the periodic table and, like, the chromosomes. Are you kidding me, Mary Tyler Moore? (laughs) And also she's like... (laughs) Look at it like like that show is known for being a feminist, groundbreaking, single working right. woman show. Yes. And that's where it felt like, oh, this is devastating. Like she broke down so many barriers and then, yeah, I mean, just. And then built them right back up before she left. And then built them right back up. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I also know so many working moms and it is great. It is fine. Like, don't put that lie into the world. Oh, it's just ugly. And it's just like, no, man, maybe you just like, didn't connect to your child and didn't try hard enough to. Maybe you just didn't like put the work in. Maybe, maybe you were too- you- didn't mean you weren't meant to be a mom at or maybe 18, you were okay. That too, yes. Oh my yeah, god. Like that yes. clearly got foist upon her. She's Catholic. There was yes. never another option. Yeah. Like, yeah, what whatever it is, she doesn't tell us in the book though. Instead, she's like, no mom should work. And but when you read it, you can tell she's not connected to Richie. And I was really mad at her. And I was like, I will never come back from this quote. I can't enjoy the rest of the book. <laughs> and then Later, again, another trigger warning, in a very, like, terse two pages reveals that when Richie is 24, he accidentally shoots himself. And uh, at first it was reported as a suicide, and then she later finds out he was playing with guns. I guess he collected guns. But also preceding that is that he had fallen into drugs and some really intense, difficult situations after they let him live alone as a teenager— Wait for it, in Fresno. <laughs> like, I mean, you know what I mean? Listen, to all the Fresno cookies, don't come at me, but, like, not the place he was you in, want anyone to he live He was in alone. high school. He was in high school. And, like, didn't want to change schools because his dad moved away. And, like, they were like, oh. And he was like, what if I just get my—he convinced them. He was like, yeah. what if I get uh, this, my own great. apartment? It'll be great. So-and-so's parents will check in on me. 
and it will be fine. I'll work really hard. And they were like, okay. Okay, sure. Sure. And then six months later. That sounds like a good plan. Calls them and says, a cocaine dealer is going to beat my ass tonight if you don't come rescue me. Okay, so all all of that, then go back to like, and her, I mean, when her son died, I was like shaking. And and it it hits you in the book. Like there's no, it just comes at you. Yeah. And it made me forgive this quote because she's really in pain about it. Yeah. But like can't say she's in pain about it. Yes. That wrecked me. It wrecked me too. That was my first big sob. And it just was so tragic. And then it made me think about, there is a section before that where maybe it's in his recovery. There's a, there's like a short period of time where she says that they got closer. They like kind of broke through. Like they would call, he would call her and check on her because she had gone through a, gone through a divorce. And so he was was. coming around as like a protector. Yes. And he got really protective. And I thought, oh, that's like, that's kind of lovely. Like they found their way a little bit maybe as like he got older, maybe he, you know, and then that happens and you're just like, oh, she, like the only reason I think she talked about, I think the only reason she talked about that part was, you know, knowing that she would describe his death later in the book and like, you know, and yes. just, and then yes, that sent my mind into a tizzy. But yeah, it just so, so sad was, to have that like relationship be so fraught and then to lose him so young. Yes. And and also to have, like, uh, forever in history, uh, an actor playing your son on television in reruns when you're spoke to the same name. Like, oh, my God. The torture. Like, the, tor- the torture. The dark, the dark torture. torture. The, like, and dark karma. Like, yeah. Yes, yes. And she has a quote. Like, actually, I think it's my favorite quote in the book after this happens. Let me find it. What was interesting is that she tells you about what happened with her son. Mm-hmm. There's a paragraph that I'm going to read that's really beautiful. And then that's it. And the, the next page is about her finding love again. And I, 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 I was, this is where I was like, where was the book editor to be like, you need to, I wasn't, I personally wasn't gotta, ready to move on. We got to work on these transitions gotta, a little bit. <laughs> work on these transitions. But she wrote this thing that I thought was incredible. And again, a reminder, no ghostwriter. I stopped seeing my analyst and taking a firm hold of the straps on my boots, held my breath and pulled. Denial has always had a pejorative cast to it, but isn't the conscious denial of danger what makes a hero? I was like, oh, because then she just moves on. She's like, and now I'm dating again. And you're like, oh, that is you saying, like, I'm just not going to deal with it. But also, what a beautiful quote. I was like, this belongs in a Batman Dark Knight (laughs) remix. (laughs) It does. It does. Yeah, it's like that. I kind of felt like that throughout the book of just like, Oh, I don't like her. Oh, I think she's awful. Oh, maybe she's yeah. a baller and she's really tough and she grew up in a different time. And like, I, I still haven't totally reconciled my like full opinion of her. I, I'm so glad you feel that way because also you're thinking like, this is Mary Tyler Moore. Like, I don't want to feel this way. Right. But you're like, I cannot get on board. No. Okay. So then, um, okay, we're going to leave that part of the book behind. We're still in the beginning. She doesn't give any, like, I'm trying to make it as an actress. I'm following my dream. Like, none of that. She's just like, one day I got a call to play Dick Van Dyke's wife. And you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, but also I was like, did you, ever, did you ever get a call where you were just like, yeah, this part is mine and here we go? No. Also, I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Hollywood was so fucking different then. What the hell? You know? Yeah, like, like, what the hell? You just get a phone call? <laughs> you 
just get a phone call to like come to the studio to audition to be Dick Van Dyke's wife after being in like some random commercials? Like I don't. It, yeah, it was like a show where she was. It was just her voice, and she wasn't on screen. Oh yeah, and she that's asked right. for more money, and so they fired her and replaced her with a different actress, not on screen. That's and it was right. like that in a commercial, and then yeah. Dick Van Dyke's wife, and then that's it. Yeah, it was like I was like, what if, the fuck? If only, if only, and then she's just famous after that. Like, she is Dick Van Dyke's wife. She's hugely famous. And she did write something that I, I, it gutted me. I am a comedian, and I have had a great sadness in my life. A withholding father, a mother bouncing off door jams, early deaths. Comedians bring themselves out of sadness through humor. There is also a bid for attention from the comedian. Love me, love me, laugh, show me you love me. A laugh is tangible. Okay, so as a comedian yourself... <laughs> How'd that hit? Hard disagree. <laughs> oh, tell me, tell me. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't like buy it from her that much. Like that, that, oh, I don't know. Like she, yeah. like she used the things that upset her about her life as an excuse sort of to be like, well, but I'm a comedian. So it makes sense. Like it felt more like that than like a, uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. she okay. also talked about like arriving at Van Dyke and, and feeling like she was the dramatic actress and that like the, you know, the, the singer dancer. Yeah. And that the cast was like these comedy heavyweights. And like, I definitely think that she found herself and she definitely is a comedian. She's so, so funny. And like, you know, she discovered that part of her, but like, yeah. I don't know, to me, you know, the, the comedians that can like sort of stake that claim are like, I don't know, using humor and like from a very early age and and in much more like deeper, more creative ways. Like, you know, I'm oh, like, I, I don't, love I don't this know. take. This is a spicy I don't know take. That, I like I it. I don't know that you get to wave that flag, Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> <laughs> that also is... there are plenty of comedians that like are brilliant and hilarious and don't like come from a place of pain and darkness too. Like, you know, yeah, I, yeah. that's true. I mean, okay. Well, okay, I'll say this. I read that quote and I was like, I completely relate. <laughs> I, I know. Like, yeah, I, I'm yeah, all in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hook, line, <laughs> but and and the reason why I bought it from her is because she definitely doesn't. Even when she's like sharing and being vulnerable, you can't. Even as a reader, you kind of can't feel anything from her. Yes. So picturing someone going out there to get a laugh and put it in the bank and get a laugh and put it in the bank. And yeah. I, I was like, oh, I feel like that. And the other reason I'll give it to her is because she has these incredible daddy quotes. At one point she wrote, she meets her next husband, Grant, and she says, what could have been more irresistible to an insecure, career-obsessed daddy seeker? Which, by the way, is that my new Twitter bio? Should I change it tonight? <laughs> like. <laughs> That's what I mean. Then she drops these lines that are so self-aware and so, like, that you're just like, oh, my God, I love you. Like, yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. But then, okay, what you said also makes sense, though, because— and it really grated on me where she was like, oh, I never believed in myself. I never believed in myself. And then she told a story about how on the Dick Van Dyke show, she's early in her career. She's not the lead of the show. They had written an episode for her, and she didn't like it. So she walked out of a table read. It was an episode for her. They had been telling her for months, like, this is your big episode. The episode goes on to be one of the most successful episodes they ever do. And she walks out of the table read. And, and she was like, it was so crazy. I'd never ever done it before. But I thought, like, if you're the kind of person who can even do that once, like, that is a certain type of person. Like, have you ever seen someone walk out of a table read? No! 
Yeah. Is, that was what I was just like, you, uh, I, you keep saying how insecure you are, but yet you, you do these things <laughs> that, I mean, she was mad because they had built up that episode and then it was just her in the bathroom with her toe stuck in the faucet and yeah. you don't see her for the whole episode. And they were like, it's going to be, and she was like, but you don't see me. I was like, and, yeah. and, like, <laughs> I was like, if you're so insecure in your like abilities and stuff, but then you're like so mad that this like episode that's supposed to be great for you, like doesn't show your face. Like, what is that girl? <laughs> I don't. And I think like, I, there are certain people, and surely in myself, I'm like, I suck. And then I'm like, but I should run everything, right? Um, and sure, I, but yeah, yeah, the yeah. way she described her duality, I could never get with it. Like, her specific takes on yes, it. Yes, her yeah, duality I, was, like, very, very intense. Like, very, yes. yes. And, and, it, and like, kind of like you said, which feels shitty, but it was, like, a little hard to believe sometimes because— she would do these things where you'd be like, this sounds really mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I guess that does come from insecurity, but you're like, whoa, this is like fucking intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, it didn't, it didn't, didn't seem like, yeah, that's what I mean though. It didn't seem like it was coming from a place of insecurity more. It felt like it was coming from a place of entitlement a lot of times. No, that's a really good point. And you were mentioning like, she's not really aware of, or, or doesn't make it seem like she is aware of how groundbreaking the show was for women politically. And she even has a chapter in the book where she's like, ugh, I didn't want to go support the ERA for Gloria Steinem. Yeah. Uh, ERA is the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, you know, Equal Rights for Women. Gloria Steinem invited her to a rally. And, and invited she invited her. Like, and she's like, I didn't want to go. It was going to be yeah. like, so I didn't. And, and she we said something crazy where, like, she didn't agree with it because they were, like, being too loud and messy about it or something. And I was just like, wait, what, girl? Yes, yes. This is the Equal Rights Amendment, which just says, you know, men and women are equal. And you have the face of that, the face of that in pop culture who was like, meh. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. And I felt like oh, there was no. a line where she was like, and I kind of felt bad about it, but, like, whatever. You know, it was like yeah, that kind of like, feeling. And you're just like— uh, okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have to get into her next marriage and so much more. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir 
but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. So now we have to talk about... Grant Tinker, her second husband. Uh, First husband, as we said, doesn't make a dent in the book. Second husband kind of makes a dent in the book. Um, Okay, so he contacts her right after she divorces her first husband. She's barely single. Their first date is going to the play How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and they fall in love that night. For a fall in love date, how do we feel about that? (laughs) First of all, yeah, that was where I was like, wait, what? So you went to a play, you went to a play and you fell in love. When did you talk? Like, what was your conversation? And was it just about the, I'm, I'm confused here. There feels like a lot of details are missing. A lot of details are missing. Also the irony of the play, you know, and obviously it's a comedy, but it's called how to succeed in business without really trying. And what these two go on to do is right. conquer the television industry they together. Like build an like, empire together. Yeah. It's like, were you watching people succeed in business and you looked at each other and you were like, this is it. This is it. Cause that's what it really like comes down to the description of that marriage felt like it was, I think they were best friends, but I think that like Business-wise, they built this empire and they both mutually benefited from it. And that's what kept them together for so long. Like, well, one of the things that I was, I was bummed to feel this way, but she wrote, I, I, it kind of turned me off. She was like, I t- even told him kind of right away, like, we're going to become television's golden couple. Oh, yeah. And I was like, whew, wow. Yeah. And then they do. And the what really struck me about this, though, is that I... I had not really realized her husband was this big network executive and what they did together. And it it made me realize like, oh, in an era of this groundbreaking show with so many female characters on it, she's not living with a man. They have tons of spinoffs with um, the female leads. I was like, oh, how did she do this? How did she do this? She had a powerful man backing her the whole time. And I was like, oh, this is how Mary Tyler Moore exists, which is, and I'm not mad at it. I'm happy for it. I was just like, oh, you really can't do this career alone, can you? (laughs) Right, I know. You can't come out of nowhere and build an empire, especially in that era, without, like, some dude being, like, yeah. Pulling the strings behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, But also, like, kudos to her for, I think, um, because the way she describes what he, like, he was an exec when they met, but not, like, anything crazy. He didn't have, like, any huge... But as she describes him going along, I'm like, oh, Grant knows what's up. Like, Grant knows how to do his job really well. He knows how to fix shows and how to pick shows. And, like, and I think they both do to an extent. But I was like, kudos to my girl for, like, 
being able to recognize, I think, the talent that he had and how good yeah. he was and that he was going to become even greater than yes. where, when she first met him. And like That's that a good point. And they definitely built kind each of other baller. up at yes. the same time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, yeah, and I, I, I'm happy Grant was there. I'm like, yes, like, thank God we have Mary Tyler Moore. I was just like, oh, like, that's the key to a show yeah. like that. Just to have some dude being like, do what she says. Yeah, I loved the story where it was like, the rehearsal that went really terribly. I forget oh, what show. This is so good. And and she's like, they're like muscling through it all week and she gets home and she just cries and Grant walks in and just sees her crying and just like turns around, like goes to make a phone call and like comes back and he's like, they're going to fix it. And apparently he just like called up the writers and he's like, fix it. That yeah, it. I love that. She's like, apparently the writers got a phone call. He said, fix it and hung up. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And then they did, kind of. (laughs) And then they did. But what was so, it was so frustrating to me is that when she's talking about the Mary Tyler Moore uh, show in this chapters, she talks about how there was a bunch of producers and writers and they called them the boys. She was like, so the boys would come up with a storyline. The boys would say yes. And I was, and they're called the boys. It's their nickname. And I was like, this is devastating. And she didn't even really mean to call it out. But later, when she's talking about how they fixed Rhoda's character in the pilot, um, where they added these lines and played her like this, it was a suggestion from the female writer's assistant. And I was like, oh, the female assistant made a suggestion on how to play the friendship that fixed the pilot? That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) The boys didn't do that? (laughs) I was just like, yeah, I, I, the boys, like, really, it really made me bad. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wanted to read this chapter and be like, oh, my God, the Mary Tyler Moore show, and it actually just made me upset. Same. Okay. Valerie came in and read for the part, and the boys loved her immediately. The only problem was that Rhoda was written to be a self-made loser, not good with hair and makeup, overweight, and self-deprecating. Valerie, to Jim and Alan's anguish, was the perfect actress except for one thing. She was beautiful. They asked her to come back the next day to read with me and to try to frump herself up a bit beforehand. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't hide her beauty. Once again, the boys had to rethink the character, and they did. So what if she were attractive? The important thing was like so many women, Rhoda didn't think she was, and she was cast. <laughs> Which is like, I just, did you? <laughs> but like, did you throw the there, there, I, I did. There in that sentence is also like, oh, there's like everything I hate about, my, and I love my job and I love my industry, but like there is like, so much of what I hate about my industry, like, wrapped up into a couple sentences, <laughs> right? Oh, yes. And it's like, did you guys create—I mean, it's such a stereotype of, like, hot, sexy. Everyone wants to fuck <sighs> her. She has no idea. And, like, I, I I used to, like, do these stupid Twitter jokes where it would just be, like, so fucking hot. Everyone wants to bone her. She has no idea because she's a fucking moron. <laughs> like, what, like, how dumb is she? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how is she going through the world— Having no comprehension skills. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And, and also, like, no one ever thought to have a conversation of, like, what if we just, we love this actress and we think she's really funny and we love the chemistry. Why don't we just rethink the character? Oh, yeah. Not to mention, uh, and this, look, character is great, actress is great. However, it, I don't find it to be a coincidence that the actress right. they loved for the frumpy role was right. 
was fucking hot. Like, was I bet they hot, saw yeah. some non-conventional actresses who were incredible, and they yeah. were like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, like, she's just I'm so sure. frumpy, though. <laughs> she's so frumpy, though, and she's a loser. You're like, okay. But that's what you wrote. <laughs> so you wrote. But, okay, my favorite part of this chapter, though, is that she said, um, historically, Mary Tyler Moore pilot, all, all pilots get tested. For anyone who doesn't know, they, they test it with test audiences. They report back the scores. It... It makes a dent in whether the show goes or not. And again, this is where her husband comes in and saves the show after it is the most poorly tested show of all time. And because he's there, he's like, just give him a shitty, you know, slot at like 5 p.m. And that's where Mary Tyler Moore starts out. And she's like, can you imagine had we not been able to be on air because people thought Mary was naggy and and Rhoda was too Jewish with some of the comments and like all these horrible comments. Mm. And then she said that's still how they test shows to this day. It's like, yeah, that is how they still test shows. That is, that is. And you guys know Mary Tyler Moore show tested poorly. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, this is not, this is not a tried and true (laughs) way of determining like what's good. It's a terrible way. It's a terrible way. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I did like her including that was my favorite part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get into the really tough chapters. So the book gets very dark from here on out. Her younger sister, who's 18 years younger than her, overdoses. It's a very cursory chapter um, where she was like, I, you know, I wish we would have been friends. And I think we would have been. Yeah. Then her brother, John, who she's extremely close to, and his death hits her the hardest out of anyone in the book. He had this horrible childhood that she kind of escaped because she got to live with their aunt, and he didn't. And he became, uh, he, he, he got an addiction to drugs, and then later he has cancer. And it's so painful that he asked Mary to help him come and, and basically perform a euthanasia so he can just be in peace and leave. Oh, oh, I was sobbing during this part. So they're sobbing. Giving, that that uh, chapter gutted me. And then gutted. was like, I was like, oh no, she's a good person. Like what yeah, like what a yeah. crazy, incredible thing to do for your brother. And like, and she feels guilt about that it didn't like go it, well. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. work. He like lives through it. And then it's <sighs> two months later. Oh my God. It was awful. And then later in the book, she was talking about John and it was um yeah, really, really intense. Yeah. At the, not at this, yeah, somewhat at the same time in between this, um, her 17-year marriage is breaking up. Mm-hmm. She had another really great line that I wanted to read, and I was like, oh, this is some couples therapy. Um, <laughs> she said, anytime we erupted in disagreement and after stifling so much for so long, it could indeed be explosive. We ruefully regarded the unpleasantness as erosion, not a cleansing process of discovery. I was like, ooh, that hit. And they just, they slowly, slowly their marriage ends. And then in one sentence, she reveals that they're both alcoholics during this time. And then later she says, in case anyone has doubts about my alcoholism, like here's how bad it was. And, and later it gets really bad, but... um. Yeah, she just kind of simply is like, we were alcoholics and our marriage was empty, and it ends. Um, and she and starts- it ends with him kind of just like sitting at the table and going, I think we need to separate. And then yeah. remember, she like has a big tantrum upstairs, and then they like sort of, it like still lingers a little more. It sort of like just slowly dissolves, and then they're like, okay, we're done. 
Yeah, yeah, and he still he still runs her company for years after that. Yes. And when he finally stops, she says it makes her sad. And I was like, testament to y'all. You divorce, and he kept running Mary Tyler Moore Productions. Also, when her—I I also found it interesting that her two marriages— does, you know, they ended in different ways, but not in like, oh, we hate each other kind of ways. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like especially yeah. when her son dies and she describes that all three of them, her first husband, who's Richie's dad, and then Grant and herself, like, drive up to, I forget where, like, some mountain that he loved or something to, like, spread his ashes. And I just, yeah. and the three of them are in the car together. And I just thought that, I was like, like, that's, that's something, you know, like yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that you're able to all come together, you know, in this. And there's no, you know, dirty laundry being aired out. You know, there's no like, there's no question of like, oh, of course, all of us will go together and cling together to like say goodbye to our son. Like, yes, you know, yes. I just thought no, you're right. I, that was something kind of, I don't know what, but it just surprised they, me. They have kind of like a, a, a transactionary relationship, but a very fulfilling one where like you do need someone by yeah. your side. You do need someone who cares. You do need someone who gets you, but they didn't have like that love part. They didn't have passion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, another thing I love about her, she takes you through every man she's ever slept with, which is yes. to say four, four men. Um, lets you know she did not sleep with Elvis when she was in a movie with him. She said mm. he slept with all of his stars but one and she knows who it was. <laughs> and then she drops some hardcore shade to Dick Cavett. <laughs> Yeah, she went in on him so hard. Okay, I'm gonna read it. I, I was like, "Oh my god!" So he asks her out on a date, and then after it, she says, "If ever I can eliminate the height factor from my list of requisites for a lover, I'll know I've grown up and left Daddy where he should be." But the thought of waking up in the spoons position with someone whose toes are pressed against my calves is even harder to contemplate than crouching down for that first passionate kiss. In spite of his <laughs> wit, gentleness, and good looks, he was short, and I couldn't get past that. It appears I'm a height bigot. Then again, Mr. Cavett has only invited me for a nice day in Montauk. Growing up is hard to do. <laughs> I was like, I mean, why did you... Why did also, you go in on all this? I laughed so hard at that comment. <laughs> I did, too. I did, too. I was just like, oh, she's really, it sounds like he was a really nice guy. Like, you don't have to do this. Um, <laughs> oh, that was one of the weird anecdotes in this book. Okay, the other four, tell me, tell me if you agree. There were four mm. of the things where I was like, how is this in here? Again, trigger warning. She has a miscarriage. The doctor tells her to save the tissue. Mm-hmm. She describes that process. Then she describes dropping the tissue, and then her dog comes in mm-hmm. and plays with it for a while, and, and you that and you and then she's just like, and then I put it in a glass jar, and and you're like, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I needed to know that your dog <laughs> almost ate. The miscarriage. The miscarriage. <laughs> it's like searching for the right word. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 I. I like it's weird. I'm like, oh, I love the messiness. Life is weird and messy. Another part of me was like, why? Why did you do this to me? <laughs> it's not. It's also not to be funny. It's not a funny story. And you're like, okay. And she's like, yep, that was that. And you're like, okay, Mary. Okay, are you okay, Mary? How do you feel about it? How do you feel? And and so wild. Then the. I mean, there's more weird ones. The other one is that she talks about how uh, when Kennedy died, how awful it was. But she says. When they announced the news Kennedy died, she made a joke and said, thank God. 
And then she was like, I can't believe I made a joke and blah, blah, blah. She moves on. But you're, you're again sort of like, is this like a confession? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, what is, what is this? Like, yeah. You know, yeah, cause she's like, I, right. felt, I don't know. It was odd. It's so odd. Yeah. Like, I, did you put it in the book in case any, you're so worried anybody heard you say that joke that just in case yeah. they did, you want them to know your thought process That's behind this? That's kind of what it felt like. Like there, there was someone on set who remembers her doing this. And in this book, she was like, for you reading this, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, I get that. But sure. then- Two more weird anecdotes. She talks about her son, Richie, catching a a shark. And he's like fishing for the shark. And then they're going to eat the shark. And then she describes cutting it open. And there's a bunch of um, passed away dead shark babies. Mm -hmm. And then she makes a joke and is like, guess we ate pasta that night. And you're like, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Why are you doing this? Yeah. This cannot be one of the greatest moments of your life to put in your book. That's like the experience of reading this book. You just have all these little moments where you're like, okay. And then you turn the page. You're like, oh, yeah. And then the stories all end so quickly. So it was like, it literally ends on, we had pasta that night, and then there's a new chapter. And then then later, a weird paragraph where she grapples with whether animal experimentation is okay. And and again, you're like, why? And she doesn't really have a conclusion. You know, she's like, maybe it's okay sometimes. You're like, okay. Yeah. She's like, if it was to save my own son, I would support it. But also, what is the morality of experimenting on animals? I don't know. And you're like, I, what? Okay. Uh, What? No conclusion? Just weird. Yeah. Really made me feel. You always think she's like going to start something and get into something more. And then she does it. And then she doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And she just moves along and you just kind of feel like you're like run over by a car, but then you're okay. You get back up and then it kind of bumps you on its way out. And like, you're like, yeah. okay. Okay. Um, so wild. Um, but then the the most vulnerable open part of the book, like still four pages long, she, uh, her mom gets bronchitis. She takes her to the doctor. The doctor is 18 years younger than her. She's like, he's hot. She gets wasted that night, calls him at three in the morning and is like, let's have dinner. (laughs) And he's like, okay, great. And they fall in love. She marries a man, 18 years her junior. Uh, He is Jewish. She is not Jewish, but she like semi-converts for him. The book is dedicated to him. He's the only thank you where she says, thank you for turning the light on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And they're married until the day she dies, very happily. Yeah. And again, just like... It's hard to hook into. It's it's it is. It's hard to hook into. But you're. Ha- I was happy for her. I was very happy for her. Yeah. It was hard to hook into. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. 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 Yes. And then she has a great story about how they train to have a Mary Tyler Moore spinoff show, and the scripts are all shitty. And one day, the two dudes who she hired to write it again, the the new boys, the new come boys. in. They're like, "You treat us like shit." Like, you don't value us. You don't honor us and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, the audacity. And they walked out and they were like, at least we got our balls back. And then she picks up the phone, calls CBS, and she's like, take the show off the air immediately. And they're like, well, you got your balls, but Mary Tyler Moore has your dick. (laughs) On the hood of a car. (laughs) On the hood of a car. And then I was like, I'm back on Mary's side. I really like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. She's like, I I, I can't, I don't. 
I don't know that I know really like have a good sense of who she was like right yeah. she's she's yeah. a weird enigma like and she's yeah. hard to pin down mm-hmm. even in her own non ghost written book like that is an impossible feat to pull off and it's long it's, it's long, long as a big book three so many words pages <laughs> yes. um, okay so we're nearing the end of the book she. She has a really cool line where she says, sometimes the invasion of privacy has a good payoff because through Liza Minnelli being outed as having an addiction, she finds out about the Betty Ford Center. And when she is addicted to Valium and her alcoholism is really intense and she kind of notes like she can be really vicious and she kind of becomes like her mom. She's smoking three packs a day. Mm -hmm. Um, That she goes into the Betty Ford Center and it saves her life. Yeah. And not again, not a lot of details, but she she does describe her like one day they like take their snacks and she like she holds a coup for the floor. Yeah. And she goes to the nurse and she's like, You have no right to take our things. And I'm leaving. And she like sneaks out and like goes to a hotel and is like, You don't, you don't know respect and you don't blah blah blah. And then Betty Ford herself calls her up and she's like, and that call saved saved my life. And I went back. Went back. You can kind of you can kind of hear a little bit of Mary in that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, well, because the book is just kind of like these curt little things. And then she goes and gets a house on the Hudson and just kind of lives happily ever after with a bunch of horses. Yeah. Yeah. The horses it, thing it, also felt really random to me because she's like, <laughs> she, oh, that's, she does talk a little bit. Um, and I only remembered this because she, it's, she talks about it in the horses of like, I guess she wanted to be a dancer. Maybe that was like one ambition. She wanted to be a dancer more than being an actor. And because she says some line about like, well, I could never have, I could never, I never got to fulfill my dream of being a ballet dancer. So I at least got to fulfill my my childhood dream of owning a horse. And I was like, oh, "Oh, you know what I think she says? This is like the end of the book. There's just like a few pages less. And I'm like, wait, was that an important thing to you, Mary? Because I've just read this whole damn book and this is the first time you're talking about a goddamn horse. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what I think she says? I think she says, I borrowed another child's dream. And got a horse. I don't even think it's her dream. I think she's like, I got a horse. And I read it as hers. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank goodness. I know. I know. But then, you know, she names the horse after her brother. Yeah. And she's like, just in love with this horse. And like, that's actually, let's read the end. Yeah. The end of the book will let you know what the rest of the book is like. Yes. Oh my god! I did. Lo- I do love the picture of her and her very young, handsome doctor husband, and their two dogs, yes. which are, have, are very serious dogs. That was great. Also, the she other. Said, I just because I looked at her face, I looked at the same picture. Um, she also like drops that she got a facelift in like three oh, sentences. Yes. <laughs> like, How could we skip that? Okay, that's the best story in the book, and kind of the only funny one. Yes. Yes. So she starts the story saying, what matters most is who you are on the inside and not what you look like. And the next sentence is, so I got my facelift in California right after my divorce, which I thought was very funny. And this is like one of the lighter stories. Yes. And she goes through all of this work to make sure that no one realizes she had a facelift. She doesn't want the paparazzi to know, doesn't want it to make it into the press. And so she wears a scarf and sunglasses. And then she holds a giant dress box, like she's carrying something into her hotel room. And you can't see her face. And then when she gets off the elevator, 
Her hat flies off, and she looks up and sees there is a conference for plastic surgeons <laughs> happening on her hotel room floor, and her cover is broken. And, yeah, it was, like, one of the lighter stories. But, you know, there's other times, there's other stories that, where she doesn't sound aware, and sometimes she even sounds cruel. There's so many parts where she just sounds so privileged and just, like, yes. out of touch. And so my favorite one is, like, towards the end of the book where she's talking about, and I think that she is single. It's before she's met her last husband. What's her last husband's name again? Um, Dr. Levine. Dr. Levine. Okay. So she's, like, in her singlehood, and she says, I decided to go it alone and commissioned an apartment to be designed just for me. It was to be the tiny jewel of the San Remo Apartments North Tower right on Central Park West. <laughs> there were views of Manhattan in every direction since it was the entire 21st floor, just 18 square feet, 1,800 square feet, but each adorable foot would be all mine with the ability to welcome a guest for a short stay. I was like, bitch. 1,800 square, square feet. feet in New York City is a mansion. And it's on Central Park. in L.A. is a mansion. <laughs> she called it the tiny jewel of the San Remo Apartments North Tower right on Central Park West. Oh, my God. So, wait a minute. Okay, I'm just putting this together. When she later says when Dr. Levine moves in and it's so cramped, they keep knocking into each other and they have to buy that house on the Hudson. That's that apartment? It's that, it's that, that's that apartment. And she also just like start. it's a really, it's one of those like two page <laughs> chapters. And it's all to set up talking about, again, another anecdote where you're just like, okay, what? About the bed, the really expensive bed yes, that she wanted. Yes. And, well, and wasn't it like $95,000? $85,000. And then her craftsman, and then Angelo, oh, the, like, famous architect or, or designer that did the apartment, pointed out that one of his craftsmen could not easily, mind you, but could copy it, which ended up being $72,500. <gasps> but it was, but it, it was everything I dreamed it could be. A bed. Wait, I think I blacked this out. Because if I knew she slept in a $72,000 bed, I would have thrown the book a third time. $72,000 bed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, again, here's, here's one thing that really gets me, though. is like, you know what? You're rich. You're whatever. Everyone's entitled to do what they want to do. Just do it. You don't have to put it in the book. Like, you don't why have to put it in the are book. you putting it in the book? <laughs> like, uh, and then she talks I, about the Upper West Side, which is my favorite New York neighborhood. Of course. You, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And she does describe, like, what it used to be. The mom and pop stores on Columbus Avenue, the Italian shoe repair, the Greek diner, the Jewish delicatessen are mostly gone now, but their simplicity beckons to those of us who called ourselves artists. As someone back then said to me... Yes. The nice thing about Central Park West is that you can live there and pretend you're not rich. Not rich. God damn it, Mary. I that. God damn it. <laughs> I, that one I was like, I took with humor where I was like, oh, yeah, they think they're different than the Upper East Side, I guess. But 1,800 square feet, I don't, I don't know. If, I mean, oh, my God. Uh, like, I, yeah. <laughs> and then, yes, you're right. That's the tiny apartment she goes on to describe in the rest of the book. She was like, we have to move out because we would, she said they were knocking knees. 
I mean, imagine knocking knees with someone at 1,800 square feet. Oh, my God. Also, at some point, she makes the young doctor move out because he, like, doesn't stick up for her at a dinner or something. And she's like, oh, get yeah. the fuck out of my house. And he has to pack all his medical books. And he's working. Um, he's, like, still in med school, so he's working multiple shifts. And so yeah. he's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I can't get out by tomorrow because I'm, like, on all these hospital shifts. And she's like, get out. And then she comes back, and they unpack the books and get married. And his family – one thing I love is that she's like, yeah, his family hated me. They were like, why are you marrying this old woman? But we did. Right, yeah. And I was like, that's right. I know. Again, yeah, again, you're like, all right, like, you're kind of a baller, but also you're kind of a dick. I don't know. Yeah, it's just like, oh, I can respect you from afar, but, like, I think I bet if I had been around you, you'd be my mortal enemy. Yes. But, you know, also my mind goes to, like— what it must have been like to be uh, a woman on the rise and a woman in in charge of this big company at that time. And just like, right, the self-preservation that probably does have to happen. Like, you know, that is probably why she is this ice princess. Like the meanness, I don't know. Like, I just think, I personally feel like most, a lot, not all, but a lot of older actresses I meet have this little chip on their shoulder, you know, mm, because they had to like the shit I went through, they, the shit they had to go through. Like they had to really rough it out, you know? And then especially sometimes they see us having it way easier than they did. And, yes. you know, and sometimes and we're still like, having complaints and, and still having and complaints to me. Like it's so hard out here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you should pay me more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, well, like you're lucky you're not if doing you're, this for free <laughs> and sucking his dick after work. Like, <laughs> yes. It's like so much respect for that. But I think you can tell she really closed the, yeah, she closed the door behind her. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, she's not pushing the ERA through. She's, it is by accident, there's these, like, spinoffs of these other shows. Yeah, she didn't really, like, yeah, she wasn't on a mission to, like, really make it better for all women necessarily or improve the conditions of the industry for all women. Like, yeah. Which I know that's a lot to ask, and she was busy being a superstar. We don't want to, like, put all of that on her shoulders, like, totally. But, like... And but yet, maybe just, and like, yet. one thing. Like, just do one thing. Just, and like, maybe she'll look at Gloria when she asks you to. Like, I don't yeah. know. And also, like, Gloria Steinem asked Mary Tyler Moore to show up because they weren't going to get press for the ERA unless they got Mary Tyler Moore or a celebrity. Oh, God. Also, here's the thing. It's like, if you're going to put the price of the bed in there, put in one fucking thing you did for ladies. You know? You know? Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to read the end of the book. Here we go. I really loved her at the end, and then this this tipped me back over. (laughs) She said, um, uh, she has this thing happen with a horse, and then she says, it was a metaphor for the way I had lived a good lot of my life. Be wary, be perfect, and if you can't, then do not enter life's contest. That's... That's like, it's how she's seeing us out. And then she said, but I loved this imperfect animal. She's talking about the horse. And I felt the warmth between John and me, my brother and me, how different we were, how connected. I could feel the ease with which I loved my mother and my father and Bertie for all their colors. No matter if they were bright or muddied or without pigment at all, me too. Now, as I am writing this book, I'm no longer hiding my faults or theirs, and I forgive us all. The blue-eyed horse has given me the ability to celebrate us for the odd and beautiful collection that we are. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I was crying. I was crying before this page. I, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was crying I was, and I, yeah. And then it, I was she, too. She drops then, you off. She says, go home. We're done. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. 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 Her, her <laughs> life contest line. Yeah. Made me mad. And then, but then it ends beautifully. And I'm like, okay. Like. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it doesn't sound like she's being like, but that's wrong. And she's saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you can't can't hack it. Like, get out of the contest. Get out of the but game. I did like this weird horse. I but don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, on the podcast, we always answer if it if it passes the Bookdel test. The Bookdel test has three questions. Number one: Was she vulnerable? Did she give us her truth? Oh, I know. I, I think. Know. I definitely think she did the best she could. This was I think a she lot did the best she could. Yes, yes, that's a great. Yes, yes. I don't, and I think she she definitely gave everything she could. Yeah, I don't but, think but that yeah. she's necessarily more vulnerable or truthful in her real life than she was yes. in this book. Yes, agree. Okay, which is kind of sad. I know. <laughs> oh, listen, the Trailblazers—they did a lot for us. Yeah, um, they really did. <laughs> um, okay, was the second question is was the book entertaining? Uh... This, I would say that, yeah, the second half of it was. Yeah, I would say sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes it's very entertaining, sometimes not. Yeah. And the last question is, uh, did reading it elevate your life in some way? Um, I would say yes, because there were for me, but like this is very specific to me personally. I started reading the book on my flight home from shooting Seth Meyers for the finale of Brooklyn. And I, and because I had procrastinated so much with reading this fucking book. So my flight home. (laughs) You're like, fuck Chelsea. No, actually, personally, like huge thank you because it's the first non-parenting book I've read in five years and I'm in. Oh my God. Okay. Then yes, you're welcome. Yeah. So thank you. Um, so, yeah, so it was, and the book opens with her talking about, like, the end of the show and, you know, all the feelings she had. And and for me, there was, like, a kind of just emo, nostalgic kind of ele- element to it. And, and the timing of reading it right after this kind of huge chapter of my life had ended was kind of perfect and eerie. And, um... And yeah, so so for me, that the answer to that question is yes, but I think that that is specific to me. <laughs> yes, I, I no, I, I I love that answer, and I because I definitely have to go with a hard no, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This truly was kismet that we did this book together. I, I got some extra chills uh, because of it. Um, okay, so we end every podcast with a thank you. Um, I'll go first, and I'll pass it to you. Um, I want to thank Mary for this quote in the book. She said, I sometimes think I'm lucky to have been an alcoholic. It is not an irresponsible thing to say. Had I not been forced to confront myself, I might never have come to know and admire that person I am. And I was like, wow. Whoa. Yeah. What, uh, like she clear she and this doesn't happen till like way later in life. So it's like she really barreled through life and then was forced via tragedy to face herself and came out loving herself. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like a very beautiful thing to include. And of course I want to thank her for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Listen, I I though I prefer, you know, some of the images I had before this book, I mm-hmm. it still is so <laughs> incredible and huge. And like where the fuck would we be without her? You know? Yeah. And even like she was the first like 
TV wife on television to wear pants. <gasps> to wear pants. I forgot on the Dick about Van that. And Dyke they were like, show. no, you're a mom. You can't wear pants. And she was like, I know what modern women wear. And they wear pants. Yeah. And she stood her ground. And she was so, and this also didn't occur to me till later because she doesn't, she sort of glosses over how young she was during all of that. She was like in her early 20s. Because then, wow. like, she then did Mary Tyler Moore, I think, in her 30s, early 30s, like late 20s, early 30s. Right, um, right. And yeah, she's a which, baby. She's a baby. And she, like, stood wow. her ground and did these really groundbreaking things. And so, I mean, yeah. It's and like, became a massive boss. I mean, Melissa, what if they were like, sorry, you have to wear a skirt every day? Like, you know, what if it was but like, no. even me? like didn't start Brooklyn I was like 30 when I started Brooklyn I might have been like okay like okay, <laughs> you were a cop in a skirt okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> Melissa now would be like fuck you but like but yeah like I you know it's just like that that's kind of extraordinary in that time yeah. in that place in those circumstances for a woman in her early 20s to be like no no, and, and and clearly becomes, like, a massive boss and, like, runs the show and even, yeah. That, yeah, she has that empire by, like, age 40. What an empire. The empire that buys the tiny 1,800 square feet. <laughs> um, the tiny jewel of the Upper West Side. The tiny jewel of the Upper West Side. <laughs> if I ever buy a home, that's what I'm going to name it now. The tiny jewel of the Upper West, no matter where it is. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this book with me. Listen, everyone already follows you on social media, but drop your handles just for fun, I guess, if there's one person out there. <laughs> yeah, super easy, at Melissa Fumero on Twitter, on Instagram. I don't do Twitter that much, but Instagram. Uh, Instagram is my happy place. Me too, me too, yeah. And thank you for giving us Amy all those years. And Aww. this was a big moment, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy you did the podcast at this time. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. This Bye. was super fun. Bye. That's all for this week's episode. If you want to share a thought or an insight, go to our Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast on Facebook. That's where we have a little cookie community. Or you can go to my Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. That's where I post about the books. I post, um, I, I keep up on all of our cookies. I post share memes. I sometimes post about my job, sometimes post about needy quarantine dog. It's all the things at Chelsea Vantes. And thank you to our podcast producers, executive producer, Daisy Rosario, producer, Corinne Wallace, and our episode engineer, Marcus Hom. We could not do it without you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening and come back next week for our Halloween episode with Elvira's memoir. <laughs>